Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and today we have a return guest that I'm really excited to talk to because these books are like so, such a good read. His books are such a good read. Michael J. Tagayas is a New York Times bestselling author and co-author of 30 books for adults and seven for children and young adult. Among his bestsellers are The Finest Hours, which um, a Disney Motion Pictures version was made in 2016 or came out in 2016, Fatal Forecast, Overboard, King Philip's War, and External Survival Lessons Learned. And the book that we're talking about today is Extreme Survival, Lessons from Those Who Have Triumphed Against All Odds. Welcome back to Writer's Voices, Michael. Thank you, Monica. Good to be back. <laughs> so let's start out. How did you get into writing about these extreme survival situations? Because a lot of your books are have that sort of as the as the basis of the story. Yes, I've done seven books with that uh, true survival and rescue theme. And over many years, uh, I've interviewed probably 70 or 80 extraordinary survivors who, as I was interviewing them, thought I, I could have never made it. And that would send me into a deep dive with them of, okay, what was your thoughts? What was going through your mind to keep going? And and so that was the, the genesis of extreme survival is how do these people do it when the rest of us think we could have never got through the ordeal? And, and as you gather these different stories, um, you made the decision to, to write this particular book. And so what led to that? Primarily, I wanted to do a book that was not just edge of your seat, which, you know, the others, that was the main focus, edge of your seat, page turners, keep you up all night. This one, I wanted to have that component, but also the component that all of us could probably use some of these same techniques that survivors use when we're faced with a really difficult goal or adversity in our lives. So I thought, wow, no, what better way, you know, to get that message across and to share what these people told me, uh, you know, for example, how do you, how do you survive three days, 300 miles out in the Atlantic ocean, <laughs> treading water and not, and not give up? You know, and that's that's what I would really, you know, in some cases, I'd spend a week at these people's homes and just we would just keep digging and digging. And then little patterns started to emerge. And over time, I saw some common techniques from various survivors. And so that gave me the idea for extreme survival. Wow. Wow. So. A lot of these are, are also a lot of these survival stories are ocean disasters mm -hmm. and are you a sailor an, an ocean going person yourself i am a boater uh i'm always out on the the ocean fishing and i so that's although a lot of the stories are about the ocean 
I wanted to mix in some about uh, hiking. You know, there's a couple Mount Everest stories. There's a couple uh, incidents on the uh, Pacific Crest Trail. Uh, so th- there's a there's a mix, but but ocean has always been my my little uh, niche. The the predominance of stories are about ocean survival because usually they last a number of or de- uh, days. And I found if it's just a, a quick survival story that could never sustain a book. And and usually um, there's not the twists and turns that that you would expect in a, in a multi-day event. And you also do some, you know, kind of human f- tragedy or, you know, I don't know what you say. I'm talking about the Holocaust survivors and the yes. <clears throat> prison camp survivors. And um, how are they similar to the ocean survivors? Yeah, that, that, that mindset and techniques they would use to get through, you know, POWs as well, like John McCain, who was held in a uh, North Vietnamese prison for seven years. Um, again, I would see some some patterns they would use. For example, two of the Holocaust survivors that I researched deeply wrote that one of their main purposes to, to live was to bear witness, to get through this so they could, one of them, quote, hurl what happened into the face of the world that, that needed to survive to tell people about the brutality. And then in John McCain's case, being held at POW, he said that the key was to take the long view, to not be get too high anytime there was a rumor of a POW exchange and he had a little term for it. He called it a steady string rather than an up and down kind of yo-yo effect. He said those survivors didn't do well. And I said, aha, that's just like one of the ocean survivors I researched. He said when the people in his raft saw a ship come by, they figured they're all going to be rescued. The ship never saw them. And he said, that's when they gave up and started drinking and or sipping seawater. You know that same thing. But he had been—he had actually been in an incident earlier, adrift at sea. He knew just go for as long as it takes. Don't get too high. Um, you don't know when rescue is coming. Um, so he was able to get over that huge crushing blow of the ship not seeing them. Wow. Well, that's <clears throat> when I read these stories, it's, you know, I can't I can't even imagine myself in the circumstances that these people find themselves in. And yet the way that you have structured the book, I can see myself using the techniques that they used in everyday life. So tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about how the book is structured. So that the chapters group the the different survival stories by the the theme that they might might have used for example to get through it um for example uh chapter one is the uh the power of little steps and by that i mean these survivors said they would get totally overwhelmed and be ready to just 
break down in tears and give up if they thought of how long it might take until they were rescued. But if they took it in small increments, like what do I have to do in the next half hour to keep going? Or what do I have to do to make my situation just a little bit better? They could string these half hour or hour periods together and pretty soon they were making it through an entire day. So so uh, in chapter one, for example, there might be five survival stories where they all use this technique and very different types of people, men, women, young, old, and in all different types of situations. So that's that's how the chapters are, are constructed. And then you, you really give the, yeah, the kind of the takeaway lessons from that chapter. And how, how much do you use this advice in your own life? Oh, uh, greatly. <laughs> we, we are all faced with disappointments and adversity. Um, you know, it's just by coincidence, I just two nights ago, I had dinner with one of the survivors who I hadn't seen in years. And, and uh, I confided in, in him. I said, you know, I thought of you. I was recently going through a tough period where my girlfriend and I broke up. And I thought of you out there on the ocean alone, just knowing you got to put some uh, time into thinking of the long picture. Don't expect to be instantly feeling good, in my case in his case, instantly being rescued, uh, take the long view that it's going to take a little time, but you will get there. And that's, that's what kept him going. And another technique he used was um, thinking of others. Uh, when he wanted to give up, he'd think of his 13-year-old daughter. And I said, you know, I kind of use something like that, too. My kids are older, but I said I wanted to set a good example for them of dad powering through the bad time, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I was thinking of others. It wasn't just for me. I wanted to set a good example as well. Wow. Yeah. One of the ones that um, really hit me was the idea that people who were thinking, who who decided to live, to survive against all odds for family, for loved ones, Mm. And, um, you know, the story of, of Admiral Byrd was was very interesting. So now he's not someone you could have actually spoken to. Right. So how did you research and what made you decide to include him in this book? So I, I supplemented the survivors. I interviewed probably 50% I interviewed and 50% were historical survivors who left eyewitness accounts of, of what they went through. And, and that's where, what Admiral Byrd did. He wrote down what he went through trapped in Antarctica through the whole winter. And I can only imagine being cold, being in a dark place and all alone for months upon months. Yeah, I didn't uh, know I his, his I didn't know his actual story that he was poisoned. Yes. By us. The, the, yeah, yes. carbon monoxide that the little stove in his hut was malfunctioning. So he needed to use it for heat to stay alive, but he also knew it would kill him 
if he left it running for too long. So he was he was ill the whole time. Um, so just you know just took every ounce of strength he had, and he did oftentimes think of his family going. I put myself in this situation. I I've got to come back for them when he'd want to give up. Yeah, and he wrote to his family members when he really thought he was dying. That's right, and he said that even that act helped him because it he felt like he was taking at least a positive step. I, I like to say, you know, in many situations you think there's nothing in my control, but in every situation there's always one thing, and that's you can control your reaction to the situation you're in. So you have complete control over that, no matter what anybody else is doing to you or what nature is throwing at you. And boy, that that can mean the difference uh, between making it and not going, okay, this is in my power, my thought process. In a way, that's that's probably the the heart of every one of these stories, isn't it? It's the control that the survivor took over their own reaction to this circumstance. Yeah, and, and searching for the smallest thing that they could uh, seize upon to either feel a little more positive or to improve their situation, even if it was only, you know, an incremental improvement. Um, I, I would see that time and time again. They were constantly thinking, what what can I do? There's got to be one more thing I can be doing to to go a little bit longer. Or, you know, in the case of any of us, if we're faced with a difficult goal, to, to get closer to that goal. There must be something I can be doing. No matter how small it is. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Just last week, I interviewed uh, Henriette Lazaridis, who just published a novel, Terra Nova, which is um, was inspired by Robert Falcon Scott, who was another Antarctic explorer who actually, mm. I don't think he did survive. I think he died, but he was, um, he his writings were what really, really inspired her because as he was dying, he was writing to his family members and, and, um, and what did he, there was a line and he said, he goes, if we were to live, what a tale we would have to tell. Ah, and, that, and that's similar to what we said earlier about the, the desire to bear witness, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. To, to tell so they know what happened to you. Um, for example, I'll give you an example. The the gentleman who I just had dinner with, the survivor, he was in the Atlantic Ocean with another. They'd been thrown off the boat in a terrible storm. And the, the captain died in his arms. And he made the vow to the his dead friend that I'm going to bring you home so your family knows what happened to you and, and can bury you and and then but it also gave Locke, the survivor, a reason beyond himself to live, to keep mm -hmm. fighting. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it had kind of a dual purpose. That yeah. Cause sometimes just doing it for yourself isn't isn't enough. 
Exactly. You have to have something external. You also, some of these chapters talk about, um, one of the chapters is focused on intuition. Mm. And, you know, even in, in my, you know, <laughs> what in, what is intuition really? And you talk about that, you know, the people have different theories, but, but what is your theory about what intuition really is? I always listen to it. And here's, here's my <laughs> belief that, that it's subconscious clues that you can't yet articulate. So at first you don't know where this feeling is coming from, whether good or bad. It doesn't always have to be, uh, you know, a, a warning type of intuition it could be go for it. But so, so I think it's these clues that you just haven't put your finger on. And oftentimes survivors have told me later, then I realized where that feeling was coming from. Um, I, I'll give an example. Deb Kiley was in a, a terrible uh, sailboat accident. And before she got on the sailboat, the last minute, she just wanted to, to back out, but she had promised and they were counting on her. And, and she later said, a list of pros and cons is, is not as important as your gut feeling. So she did this list of pros and cons and the pros won. So she went on the trip and then later she, in hindsight, realized why she didn't want to go and it's that she thought there was something not quite right about the captain something just seemed off and she discovered during the trip it was because he was an alcoholic which it's for a bad captain in a storm huh. but she didn't know it at the time but there was clues telling her something's not right about this and even later she pinpointed what those clues were wow um, you know, that we find that in a lot of ways, I think that, that this intuition is, it's not just, it isn't just a feeling. It is actually based on your observations and on prior knowledge and on experience. So the more experienced you are with something, the more likely your intuition in that area is going to, um, serve you. And exactly. yeah, even in something, um, I mean, this seems like such a minor thing, but as an accountant, which is what my day job has been most of my career, I can often mm -hmm. look at a list of numbers and immediately go to the one that's not right. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> and it's like, is this a gift? What is this? Well, it's just years and years and years of experience. It's so that the thought process happens without me even being aware of it. Right, exactly. Right. And then later, you, when you look at that number, you realize, aha, that's why it jumped out at me. Yes. Yeah. 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 And it can, you know, and it can work the opposite way. Um, I remember when I was leaving my corporate job to become a full-time author, and I had just had... Uh, 10 Hours Until Dawn published a book about uh, survival during the blizzard of 1978. And this, you know, the, the list of pros and cons all said, stay at the corporate job. 
you know, health insurance, um, a little bit longer, you can get a pension and everything else. But my gut was saying the timing's finally right. Mm. And so even though people were saying, oh, no, you need to stay, everything just felt right. So I did it and I never looked back. (laughs) Um, You know, it's just, and I'm sure it was the subconscious clues knowing, okay, you had this book that's finally a national bestseller. You're you're kind of on a roll. If you're ever going to do it, now's the time. So those were probably those little clues I couldn't quite articulate to people when they said, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Michael J. Tagayas, and he is the author of Extreme Survival. And we, why don't you read us a little bit from the book, Michael? Yeah, I thought um, I'd read from the opening chapter because it's a it's a story I really enjoyed in it, and it's one um, where I did interview the uh, survivor. So this is this is right from the get go. The survivor, his name is uh, Brad Kavanaugh. The five shipwrecked survivors clinging to the 11-foot inflatable Zodiac were in the trough of a 30-foot swell and looked up into the green walls of water. That's when they saw the sharks. Brad Kavanaugh, age 21, could clearly see three sharks, and one was larger than the Zodiac. Quote, it was bad enough seeing how large that shark was, but even worse was that the shark could clearly see us, recalled Brad. The shark knew there was life inside the life raft, and it wasn't about to leave. From the moment the sailboat he was on, named Trashman, sank, Brad made up his mind he was going to live. He thought of his mother and how his death would crush her, so he said to himself, I'm going to take this as far as I can. And because this is now my world, my reality, I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to fight to the end. And I, you know, Monica, when I saw that, that that line about fighting to the end jumped out at me because another survivor who I spent a week with, he kept using the words, yeah, I I wasn't sure if I'd make it, but I was going to go down fighting. <laughs> and I'm like, what a great what a great approach. Uh, you know, whether you make it or not, you know you've taken it as far as you can. A very similar mm-hmm. mindset to to Brad Kavanaugh's. Yeah. So, are you going to tell us a little, read a little further about Brad? I, I certainly can. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, His reality was bleak. Surviving was near impossible. And the world that Brad tried to embrace included four others with very different thoughts. And Brad had to be cognizant of them in any decisions he made. And then I go on to describe the, um, you know, how they got in the situation, uh, how the ordeal started to play out and a little further on in the story um 
two of the of the five people in the raft basically started to give up while while Brad kept experimenting with ways to say improve their situation and not all of them worked for Brad like one time he said I was going to try to slow the raft down in these big waves by uh, concocting what they call a drogue or a sea anchor. It's basically something dragging behind the raft that'll slow it down when it comes off the wave. So he said, I I had some wire and I tied a board on the end, chucked it out the back to slow the, the raft down. And he said that shark came and wham, and yanked the whole life raft back because it latched onto the board. And he goes, well, that didn't work. <laughs> but he tried. And some of the other things he tried did work. But two of the people were not trying at all, and they started to sip seawater. And about seven, eight hours later, one of them, after sipping seawater, and what, what happens with seawater is it dehydrates your brain oh rather than adding hydration. And all of a sudden he goes, uh, I'm going to... I'm going to go get some beer and cigarettes, so I'll see you later. And they go, no, 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 you're in a raft, don't. And he goes, no, there's a 7-Eleven right there. And he steps out, and boom, there's the shark. Oh, my gosh. That must have been demoralizing for the for Brad and the rest that were still it, mad. That's, just, <laughs> that, that's what Brad said. He said, all of a sudden, we let death into our little world. And he said, yes, it was totally demoralizing. Oh my gosh. Now, just paint the picture here. How big is a Zodiac? It was only uh, 11 feet. So the, the sailboat had sunk. The sailboat was 45 feet. And now, now they're on the, the so Zodiac. It's, and that's, it's an inflatable raft? Yeah, it's a little inflatable. Oftentimes they'll use it like a dinghy to get back and forth to the boat. Sometimes it has a little motor on the end that did not hear. Wouldn't have mattered anyways because it's filling with water and and at first you know brad had a good idea it kept flipping over and he said forget it let's let's stay under it upside down and hold on to the ropes we can't we cannot lose this this raft Mm -hmm. and then and then later they crawled inside when the the seas went down a little bit and of course you can't stay under it if there's sharks (laughs) yeah and they had in the the height of the storm the sharks weren't there. It was a little bit later when they're inside the raft. They could, you know, see yeah. into the waves. And they had no food or water? No food or water. And um, so it's 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 a mindset. It's like I'm oh going to fight gosh. to the end. And there were five people. And so 11 foot long and how wide? Like four or five foot uh, wide? Maybe, yeah, probably uh, five to six feet wide. Yeah. Yeah. So smaller than the room I'm in. <laughs> yeah, all crammed in there, right? And, yeah, and, and everybody's got different ideas too of what what to know, do, what to be doing, right? Now, one of the things that kept that kept him going was that he knew that there had been a distress signal sent out, right? He thought there was, and it, ah. it, it, he knew there was actually in the beginning. Okay, uh, but there was a. A bit of confusion with the Coast Guard. It did result in a in a lawsuit later. And, and I work with the Coast Guard closely, but this time things did not go as as they should have. Um, so yeah, that that was one of the reasons why they were 
in the ocean for so many days. There, the one where the 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 um, the boat faced this huge storm surge or something, and mm-hmm. they were in a place because the weather service said yes. it was going to be fine when they knew quite well that they didn't even have any any information from that area. Why would why did that happen? Well, that's that's a story near and dear to my heart because I, I wrote an entire book about it called Fatal Forecast. And what happened was the National Weather Service knew that their main weather buoy out at George's Bank, which is off Cape Cod, 200 miles off Cape Cod, had been hit by a ship and was was malfunctioning. So they weren't getting their usual reliable information. So the weather report called for a maximum of six-foot seas and um, some rain. So these commercial fishermen, they're used to that, so they go out. And um, when they, it takes all day to get out to the fishing grounds. So when they wake up the next morning, uh, Ernie Hazard, who was at the wheel, notices, well, wait a minute, the weather forecast is saying maximum of six-foot seas. We're already experienced 10-foot. And then an hour later, they're experiencing 20-foot seas. And now the weather report has gone up to 10 feet. But it's always behind what's actually happening. So it's not forecasting what's ahead. Mm-hmm. And out of these, the seas grow to 60 feet, bigger than the boat. But Ernie said that was nothing compared to this one wall of water coming at us that he estimates between 90 to 100 feet. And that, that pitch pulled the boat, capsized it, and all four crew members were trapped in the upside-down pilot house. Oh, my. So that's why I call it fatal forecast, because the, the forecast was so flawed. They should have told the mariners, hey, the weather buoy's not working, so this is not the usual reliable forecast we normally make. Uh, you know, we're we're basing it on incomplete data than what you're used to. Was anyone held responsible for that? Yeah, it was a land-breaking court case, and in federal court, this was the first time anybody successfully sued the National Weather Service because even the meteorologists all said, yeah, we relied on that weather buoy heavily for our forecast and it wasn't working and yes you're correct we didn't say that in our weather reports but Mm. then the government appealed it and it went through appeals court all the way to the supreme court and they overturned the settlement to the survivors and to the families of the deceased not everybody makes it saying that weather forecasting is a discretionary function of the government. So even though they were flawed in not telling the the mariners that the forecast doesn't have the usual reliable data in it, uh, it's a discretionary function and the government cannot be sued. I'm just, I'm curious about whoever made the decision to not put that in for, you know, to release that forecast without, I mean, what their life yeah. would be like, how how much guilt they must feel, and and why why would they have done that? 
I, I never did find out the the why. In an extreme survival book, I explain that you know of the eight mariners that that went out on two different boats, only four came back. So, what a huge mistake not not to say that the weather uh, buoy. There was actually another buoy too in the Gulf of Maine nearby. That one wasn't working either. Oh wow! You know why? Why would they not include that in the weather forecast? They certainly do now. They learned their lesson. So, if anything good came out of it, it's that yeah. Now they would tell the mariners that. Wow. You're listening to Writers' Voices, and our guest today is Michael J. Tagayas, author of Extreme Survival, Lessons from Those Who Have Triumphed Against All Odds. Am I pronouncing your name correctly, Michael? Yes, you are. Oh, good, good. So what are some of the other kind of chapter subjects in this book? Oh, well, we go from, you know, that, that power of little steps in the beginning, and then another one about... Um, trying to find what's within your within your control and every now and then giving yourself a break to detach. Um, if there's absolutely nothing going on, try to put yourself in a dream state to go somewhere else uh, to give yourself a break. And then another chapter is on giving yourself pats on the back and and that that's a good one to to compare to our day to day life because oftentimes we're looking for those that that feeling of uh, Accom- credit accomplishment an accomplishment yeah. right, from somebody else yeah. you know from our boss at work or from our spouse or whatever it may be when it it should always come from within and so the toughest survivors who made it all to a person said. I was giving myself pep talks, and whenever I did anything that seemed constructive, you know, for example, Ernie Hazard in, in that, that boat that capsized, and he was alone out there in November in the North Atlantic, I can imagine. He said, I would talk to myself. I'd say, good job, Ernie, good decision. Keep <laughs> it going now, you know, and you needed that, and I go, yeah, that's that's so true in our daily lives. We're looking for that external pat on the back when we should be giving it to ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And, okay, so we have the pep talks and the pats on the back. And then you have a chapter. Every now and then there's, yeah, there's a a chapter here on um, be receptive to getting help from a source you may not expect. And it could be, I call it, help from within and beyond because a lot of survivors say that there was somebody with me, whether they could see this being or spirit or not. In in one case, like Joshua Slocum, who was the first person to solo circumnavigate the globe during his roughest time in loneliness and in a storm, said he saw a person on the, the bow of his his boat, who who told him that he was going to be okay, just keep doing what you're what you're doing, and time and time again, uh, that came up. Even Ernest Shackleton, um, you know, who's known as one of the greatest survivors ever, 
that in the final days when he had to march over the the icebergs, um, he felt the presence of another being encouraging him. And, and later, he was with two men. Um, he talked about it, and they said, we felt it too. And so a, a poet took liberty with that and later called it the third man factor. Um, and, it's, and it's quite common. I've had many survivors say, oh, a clear voice told me what I should do next. And I'd go, do you want me to put that in the book? And I go, absolutely. It, that's exactly what happened. Like, put it in. Oh, wow. Wow. And now you also write, though, in there that some people didn't don't necessarily have a religious faith or something, and, and that yet they still were in some ways able to survive better than those that did. Yeah, it you know it depended on the individual. For example, um, I'll go back to Ernie again, just because he's at the top of my mind. He later said, uh, while I was going through this, I knew it had to be totally on on me. And he said, I would thank God after it was all over. Uh, he said, but now I knew it was on me to keep fighting and making the right decision, and I give give thanks later so there there were you know it doesn't have to be a, a religious feeling um but i i think being open to it and being open to luck as well i i did a lot of research on luck from richard wiseman who's a psychologist who studied people who felt they were lucky and he's like it's not something you're born with lucky he said lucky people are those who are always on the lookout for an opportunity and he said, and then they, they take it a step further. They're the ones who take advantage of the opening they see. And so they consider themselves lucky, but there's a, there's a clear correlation between them taking action when they spot a, uh, an opportunity or a, an opening, whereas other people are focusing on the, the woe is me. Mm. And survivors, to, to a person, they said, I had to get that out of my mind the how did i get into this jam it's my fault what a mistake they said i had to just put that aside later i could do the hindsight's 2020 thing but if i went there during the ordeal it would just tear me down yeah that tell me tell me about the chapter that's called blinded by the goal so that's that's something that that gets us in trouble um, so there's a, a tip for all of us of, of how to avoid getting in a terrible jam in the first place. And, and in that, I write about it's great to have goals, and it, it's even good if your goal is firm and fixed, and you're gonna you're gonna achieve it, whether it's getting to the top of the mountain or writing your first book or whatever it is. But the plan to get there should be fluid. In other words, if I'm climbing a really difficult mountain and my plan is, okay, I'm going to try to get up there uh, by nightfall, then get a couple hours down and camp and then get the rest of the way down, you have this plan, you know, and you're going to make it. But if new information is coming in, such as temperatures plummeting or 
snow's falling, you need to throw the plan out the window and throw the schedule out the window. And you, you can come back to that goal another time. And so that gets people in trouble. I see it all the time where a schedule or they get so close to their goal that they go, oh, just a little bit longer and I'll be there when new information is coming in that's screaming at you. If you listen, turn back, abort, <laughs> U-turn. Wow. Can you can you give us an example in of a, one of the stories that you included that illustrate that? You know, every now and again in extreme survival, I'll put a story about myself in to show that, <laughs> that, that I'm not, you know, standing up high casting judgment that I make these same mistakes all the time. And, and I can't tell you how many times, because I'm an outdoorsman, I've gotten in trouble because I had this, this plan. But the, the one time I did the right thing, I, I'll never forget it. I was near a mountaintop. And even though it was May, it was snowing, and I'm thinking, well, it's May. The temperature can't drop much more. And I'm right near the summit of where I wanted to go. And I'm like, this, it's cold. I don't care if it's May. It's cold, and it's, it's snowing, and I can't even see my tracks. If I get lost up here, I could die. And finally, I did the right thing. And and turn back and when I got to the parking lot it was a full-on blizzard and I was so glad I turned back because one I had made the mistake of not leaving my itinerary with anybody so nobody knew where I was and nobody knew when I was expected back and that's a huge mistake yeah and that's a mistake that a lot of these people seem to have made both both hikers and also you know the sailors or people out on boats it's like Oh my gosh, if I were, especially if you're by yourself, but even if you're yeah. with other people, if, yeah, that that's like my number one lesson I took from this book. If I'm ever going out into a wilderness or the ocean, make sure somebody back knows when to expect me back and comes looking right away. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, leave it with somebody responsible and, um, I, I have failed to do that so many times. And then when a close call happens, you're like, damn, I should have done that just in case. Yeah. Yeah. And, even, you know, yeah. even like in Iowa where we are, um, mm-hmm. I used to, if I were going to be driving in the winter time, make sure that there was somebody who knew when to expect me because you could get out on the icy roads and, and be stuck now i don't do that anymore yeah. because we have cell phones so i rely right. on the cell phone <laughs> but we do we do rely on technology <laughs> yes too much. yeah because every now and then cell phones don't work or they it, run exactly. out of battery well, or, <laughs> yeah well i'm out on the ocean and you know i rely on the gps many times i've thought if this gps goes out i'm in a the fog and the weather's terrible mm. i'm i'm in trouble you know, so I try to bring backups now and um, be a little smarter. Wow. But on that topic of, you know, how we make mistakes, another one is oftentimes we will trust the experts uh, implicitly without 
questioning their own knowledge. And particularly when we're on vacation, we let our guards down and we're like, yeah, this is vacation. We're going to take advantage and, and go for it. And boy, I interviewed a gentleman named Donald who uh, hired a, a guide in the Bahamas to take him bone fishing. And he assumed, you know, he's a guide, he's a fishing guide. He does this all the time. He's going to know what he's doing. And uh, they get out there and the, they're coming back and it's, the weather's getting rough and it's nightfall. The boat runs out of gas. And Don goes, well, where's the, you know, the backup gas can? Oh, there is none, man. Oh! <laughs> and yeah, the boat ends up capsizing uh, because there's there's no power and the waves are picking up. So he goes through a terrible ordeal just because he didn't do like a basic check of is this so-called expert really an expert? Wow. Now, rapid recognition versus denial. That's another chapter title. Yeah, does... I think of right. Away, <laughs> yeah. I think of two ca- two different captains. One on the that uh, Captain Sullenberger, you know, the miracle on the Hudson. You know, when he lands the plane, oh, he, yes, he recognizes yes. they're in deep trouble right away. Mm. You know, the control tower, you know, tells him circle back around. He's like, no, I have to put this thing down. We're going into the Hudson. You know, it's just he he knew from his experience just how serious it was. Wow. Whereas the captain of the, and you may remember this, it was called the Costa Concordia, this big uh, cruise ship off Italy that went close to shore, hit uh, some rocks, and this is a giant cruise ship. And, you know, the captain says over the loudspeakers, because everybody knows something's happened, everything's under control and my rule of thumb is whenever somebody says that, <laughs> my antenna should go up. Yeah, that and antenna. that and trust me. <laughs> yeah, those two exactly. And and that that captain was definitely in denial, uh, denial because there was a passenger who called the coast guard when the ship was listing. Oh my gosh! And the captain didn't order abandoned ship until it was really listing on the side. And he was one of the first ones off when he realized it was going to go over. Oh, my gosh. Well, so, yeah, one, the Titanic, one I guess, would be another one. example of that, wouldn't it? That's a, you know, the Titanic's <laughs> a perfect example of a, a bunch of <laughs> common ways that we get ourselves in trouble, such as sticking to the schedule. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a schedule. It was a maiden voyage. Got to get it to New York on time. But even though reports are coming in, that there's icebergs a little bit, uh, you know, lower, more south than normal. So they knew there were icebergs around. Wow. But, quote, the ship was unsinkable, and normally it would be if they hit an iceberg dead on, but they scraped it, so it opened up the side of the ship like a can opener. Wow. Wow. So... So admitting that you've got a problem sooner, <laughs> and and that's hard yeah. for people to admit, yeah, we have a problem. I made a mistake. I did something wrong. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. It's very, it's very hard, um, particularly if you're the, the so-called expert in, in charge. Yeah. 
Yeah. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Michael J. Tagayas, and he is the author of Extreme Survival, and let me get the sub, the subtitle is... Uh, Lessons from Those Who Have Triumphed Against All, all odds. odds. Yeah. So that was, you know, the... That subtitle was so important to me because I wanted the readers to know you're not just going to get this this survival stories. Uh, you're going to get some of the the lessons and not not what they did physically to make it, not that they walked a hundred miles through the desert or that they fixed um, uh, whatever was broken, but more get into their their minds and their thought process of how they they fight on. Yeah. And let's see. We we covered most of the kind of the lessons. Um, Yeah, resourcefulness is a a big one. And, you know, that's something I probably will never have. I'm not a technical person. Sometimes (laughs) the answer is right in front of me. But the, the best survivors are resourceful and they're always thinking of more options. There's an example in extreme survival of a man goes off the road down a ditch in his car. Nobody can see him down in this ravine and he's stuck in the car. He's pinned. He's in there for days, needs fluid, but he takes apart under the fabric of the ceiling. He takes apart some steel rods and some, ties some wire to it and ties his t-shirt to the end of the wire and kind of casts his t-shirt out the window into this little puddle 15 feet away and then brings it back and squeezes the moisture out of his t-shirt and that that kept him alive oh my and i was thinking i would have never thought of that (laughs) but maybe now having done the book i would yeah give up so easily and go surely there must be something within my reach i'm pinned in the car that can help my situation, whether it's a, a mirror that they can flash some light or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Being being resourceful works is important in a lot of aspects of life. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and a lot of you know, I would see common commonalities of the the very best survivors, even from their teenage years, oftentimes they, I'd ask, you know, for what the book or for extreme survival, tell me about your background. And one of them goes, yeah, one time summer, I, I biked from Canada, Mexico. And I said, Oh, motorcycle. He said, no bicycle. And I said, who'd you go with? He goes alone. I said, where'd you stay? He said, by the side of the road. It's like something that I'd never do. So, and that came up time and time again from the toughest survivors. They had done something in their teenage years that almost prepared them, and it was usually something all alone. Well, I guess in a way that makes sense because these are people that are putting themselves into situations that I would never do anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, true, true. I am not going to get stranded out in the middle of the ocean because I'm never going to be out in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> Where does that leave me where I'm not resourceful, but I'm always going in the middle of the ocean? And I'm not going to hike into some 
some uh, wilderness area by myself. It's just not something yeah, I yeah. would do. So, um, yeah. So you didn't. <laughs> so I guess for you, you just need to be a little more cautious. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm trying to keep when I hike, keep a, a little day pack in the car because a couple of times thinking, oh, this is just a little hour hike. A couple times I have gotten lost and wished, God, I wish I had that day pack that's in my trunk. Oh, yeah. Now I'm trying to get it through my head and have it with me at all times. Yeah, because what good's it going to do in the trunk? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. It's a a learning process, and um, if you're in any situation, even on a, like I say, on a vacation, there was a gentleman who went, um, it was going to be uh, paragliding, you know, with the, the, I call it the pilot, the one you're going to be strapped to the pilot. Well, they take off from the cliff and he realizes the pilot never strapped him in. And he's just hanging on to the bar and uh, he, he's got to hang on forever. And his lesson was, I don't care how expert the person is, double check double check everything oh my gosh oh my gosh well michael we're we are running out of time and i wanted to quickly um mention that the last i think the last time we spoke was 2016 and uh the book was so close to home and i just wanted to ask you can you tell us a little bit what that book was about in case listeners want to go read more of your of your work about in in world war ii so few of us know that the German U-boats had came to America and attacked us left and right. They sank hundreds of our ships. We were so ill-prepared. And this is so close to home. It's one U-boat goes all the way 30 miles off the mouth of the Mississippi River. So he's in the Gulf, sinks a freighter, 65 people on board. And most are sailors, but there's a family of four. And the chapters alternate between what happens to that family of four when the ship is torpedoed and sunk, their survival story, but also what's going on with the U-boat because I was able to find the U-boat commander's war diary in the National Archives. So we have his thoughts and feelings and what they're seeing and doing in the Gulf of Mexico. So it's a it's an interesting type of approach to alternate between, you know, the so-called German enemy at the time and in this family of four who he sank their ship. The thing that was most surprising to me about that story is that we didn't know that story. <laughs> we didn't. No. We didn't know that the YouTube, the U-boats were were um, sinking ships so close to the American. To, to our shores and they didn't know oh, it yeah, then either did they i mean that it wasn't the word wasn't getting out about it yeah there were there was censorship uh, but eventually people knew because body parts were washing ashore <laughs> oil slicks um and yet we were still uh acting irresponsibly for example miami wouldn't dim their lights at night and that would if a ship was going by, that would silhouette the ship, oh. and the U-boat could see the ship and get in firing position and fire the, the torpedo and sink it. 
So, yeah, it, it's almost as if we swept that whole part of World War II under the the rug. And uh, I, I, it made me want to do another World War II book, and um, it's coming out. It's called Abandoned Ship, and it's probably the strangest case of World War II disaster that, that I've ever read about. Um, it's a really unusual story about a U-boat sinking a ship and actually rescuing many of the very survivors. It sank, and then an American bomber seeing all the survivors on the U-boat asking for you know, headquarters, what do I do? And the, the order comes back, sink it. <gasps> so it's quite a story. It was covered up during the war, um, but, you know, some people made it, and their their stories are well documented. And where was where did this happen? This happened uh, seven hundred miles off the coast of Africa. Wow! And so the book is abandoned ship, and it's uh, one of those books for young adults. It's all true; every word is true. But I'm finding a lot of adults read young adult books now because they want a more concise version of the story. Oh yeah, and they're fun to read. Yeah, it's fun to read. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I, I speak all over the country, and I always bring the books and do a book signing. And more and more, I'm seeing uh, adults buy a book called In Harm's Way that Doug Stanton wrote, the adult edition, and then he had me write, uh, write the young adult edition. And adults are buying the young adult edition. I can understand. They, they yeah. Want the faster, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us again on Writers Voices. Michael's book is Extreme Survival Lessons from Those Who Have Triumphed Against All Odds. And I am going to um we always close with a quote and I have a quote from Charles Darwin. The most important factor in survival is neither intelligence nor strength, but adaptability. Perfect. Wow. (laughs) And see you all next week on Writer's Voices.